0: Welcome to Econ Talk, conversations for the curious, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Shalem College in Jerusalem and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Go to econtalk.org where you can subscribe, comment on this episode, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives with every episode we've done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is January 30th, 2022, and my guest is author and consultant, Luca Delana. Our topic for today is his fascinating book, The Control Heuristic, The Nature of Human Behavior. Luca, welcome to EconTalk.
1: Thank you, as for inviting me.
0: I want to start with the conception of the brain that you put forward, the idea of the distributed brain and how you liken the brain to a corporation or a company making a decision. And I found this to be a very powerful way to think about impulsive behavior and how to change that behavior. So explain what you have in mind about the distributed brain.
1: Yes, so I think that our brain doesn't work as one. And I'm not talking about left hemisphere, right hemisphere, but I'm saying about the fact that the cortex and other parts of our brain are made of different regions. And each region communicates with the other regions but doesn't have a full overview. And so I liken it to employees in a company. Each employee in a company has access to limited information and takes decisions based on what he thinks is best for the company, but only according to limited information. And that sometimes usually produces good results, but sometimes it produces counterintuitive results. And usually when when it produces counterintuitive results, it's because the employee didn't have the full overview. And, uh, because, because of course, here we are assuming that every, everyone in the brain, uh, every part of our brain has our best interest at heart. And then the second concept that I um, talk about is that regions see the output of other regions, but they cannot know why the region produces that output. So, for example, if I feel scared, the analytical part of our of my brain can see that the output of the emotional part of my brain is being scared, but it doesn't know why my brain said that we are uh, uh, scared. And then it confabulates. And conf- conf- confabulating means that it ch- comes up with the most plausible uh, explanation, which might or might not be the right one. And uh, this is basically um, the basis for my understanding of human behavior. And I, we're going to take it to the next
0: step in a minute, but I, I want to go for a second, talk about the confabulation, the ex post narratives we tell ourselves. And and we also, uh, once you're aware of this, after reading your book or thinking about it elsewhere, or seeing it yourself, you realize that both – you tell stories to yourself that aren't really true in the sense of the real reason you did something and you see it in other people you know you challenge someone for why they did something because you don't like it say <laughs> and they tell you something and when it's the other person, you realize right away, well, that that's not the real reason. That's just something they tell themselves to feel better about it. Uh, obviously, the real reason is, and you fill in the blank with your imperfect knowledge as the outside observer. But when it's yourself, which is really challenging, uh, you actually believe most of the time that what you're telling yourself and what you tell others is the real reason. Um, and often it's not. And that's just a great insight into how
1: we interact with each other and how we understand ourselves. Exactly. I love that you make this parallel that when we observe other people, we, we should look at their actions to know uh, what really was going on in their mind. We shouldn't trust necessarily their word. And the same applies also to us. And that's the, and that's the, um, the difficult part. I used to say everything is a confabulation, meaning that in our brain, everything is a guess. And uh, this applies to all parts of our actions and of our perceptions, even optical illusions, for example, they are a guess about uh, what we're seeing. And uh, just to make it simple, I usually simplify this a lot. And I say that there is the uh, analytical brain and the emotional brain. And uh, they always, uh, the analytical brain always tries to guess uh why the emotional brain is making us feel in some way or why is the emotional brain made us act uh, in some way
0: i think you give the example of um patients with epilepsy who've had a piece of their brain connecting the left and right brain connected uh, tell that story about the this, the person who laughs um in that experiment
1: Yes, in the 70s, there have been uh, a few experiments made on uh, some people who had the connection between the left and the right hemisphere of their brain severed. And those people, they can function normally. You will probably not notice that uh, that they have this condition. However, there is one uh, situation in which they act differently, which is if you give information only to one side of the head. So, for example, researchers, they go to the right ear of of a patient with this condition and they whisper in his right ear, can you please close the window? And the patient stands up and closes the window. And then the researcher goes to the left ear of the patient and whispers, why did you close the window? And the other hemisphere does not know that he was being asked by the researcher to close the window. And so he will confabulate the most probable, the most plausible explanation, which is I was feeling cold. And the interesting thing is that the the other uh, hemisphere does not does not think like Oh my God, I don't remember. Uh, I should come up with an explanation not to look with a, like an idiot. No, no. The guess that is the most plausible. He believes it's the right explanation. He doesn't even know that he didn't know. And that, that's, the most, place everywhere. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's the most important part of this in a way for your own one's own behavior, because until you're confronted with this possible disconnect, <laughs> pardon the pun, uh, not in good taste mm-hmm. until you're confronted with this, you, of course, believe that the a- things you say to your spouse or to your friends at work or to your boss uh, are, what, are what are true as opposed to what makes you feel better or is the most plausible, or is the most socially acceptable, right? Uh, the, when, you have, when you have a task you're supposed to complete, and you don't complete it, and someone in your family or it work says, why didn't you do it? Uh, the real answer might be, well, I was afraid I wouldn't do a good job. But you can't say that. Your brain doesn't want to say that. So it says something like, oh, I had too many, I had all these other to-dos. I, I you know, I should have gotten to it earlier. I'm really sorry. But the real answer is, I was afraid. And you can't say that. So your brain knows that, doesn't say it, instead blurts out something that is uh, not true, but feels good, sounds good, uh, and often convinces the other people and they go leave you alone. So you, you're then get into the habit of using this, this
1: excuse and you're not aware of it. Exactly. And I just, I just want to precise one thing. It's not an excuse, meaning uh, I'm doing it with the... Po- with the intent of deceiving or with the intent of putting myself in, a, in the better light. It's really just my honest, genuine best guess about why I did it. And then, of course, like we tend to have a limited perception. So we think that we are often uh, better people than, uh, or more hardworking people than we are. And then based on, on this biased perception, we take genuine guesses that we're doing it because we are hardworking or so on.
0: So the other part of the distributed –
1: so that's phenomenally interesting, and unfortunately
0: or not, I don't know if it's good or bad, but now that you've heard it, listeners, you will (laughs) start to go, did I really mean that? Is that what I really did? Is that the real reason? Uh, It's pretty effectively – it teaches you something about yourself you might not know, and I really like that. But the the other part of of this distributed brain idea is really extraordinary, which uh, I found deeply insightful, which is the idea that there's uh, a gatekeeper in the brain – you associate it with the uh, basal ganglia. I don't know if that's neuroscience neurosciencely um, accurate. I know neurosciencely is not a word, but I don't know if that's, like it might be consistent with the neuroscience. I suspect the neuroscience doesn't really know this hundred percent for sure. But what I found compelling about it and fascinating is just the very idea of it, that there's a gatekeeper that takes suggestions, um, really helped me understand some of my own compulsive behavior. So explain how that works.
1: Yes, so actually that's, uh, that's a result which is quite consistent uh, in neuroscience that there is uh, uh, this gatekeeper. We don't know how much how it works, but neuroscience shows that there is this gate which opens and closes. So how it works is that we have the analytical brain and then uh, um, the, the emotional brain. I'm simplifying the things a bit for the, for, for the podcast, but the analytical brain comes up with options for what we should do. For example, I'm thinking oh, I should uh, go run so that I lose some weight. And then the action is transmitted towards the motor areas of our brain, which are the ones that command our muscles to go to, to wear my gym shoes and to run outside. However, between the analytical part of the brain and the motor part of the brain, there is this gate. And the gate is commanded by uh, uh, parts of our emotional brain uh, which act as like a gatekeeper. And uh, we will uh, go later into what makes the gate open, but interesting, it's interesting what happens when it uh, closes. Because if the gate is open, then perfect, we just take the action. If the gate is closed, our muscles never receive the order to go wear our running shoes and go outside. So what happens is that our analytical brain is faced with the fact that we are not wearing our uh, gym shoes, our running shoes. And then it tries to confabulate what's the most likely explanation. And for example, uh, one explanation could be, Oh, it's raining outside. Or another explanation could be, ah, yesterday evening, my, my knee, uh, had some pain and I should best rest today. Or another explanation could be like in that moment, you're seeing your floor and you're like, Oh, I should vacuum today instead. And something like that. So it's the rule is like if the gate is closed, one we do not take action, and two we conf- we take a guess on why we're not taking action. The
0: other uh, aspect of it, to use um, the metaphor of the corporation that you use in the book, which which I found very helpful, is that the analytical part of your brain has lots of ideas. There's lots of projects it wants to, it wants to do. These include. Uh, opening the refrigerator to find something yeah. good to eat, uh, working on the um, the book that you need to finish, uh, spending a few minutes on Twitter just to clear your head. Um, what else would be on there? Taking a run, um, taking care of some, doing the dishes. So there's there's all these suggestions that the analytical brain is constantly bringing to the meeting, the the meeting of the corporate decision makers. Unfortunately or not, the analytical part of the brain. Uh, it has no power. It can only make suggestions. Just like low level employees. This is again your analogy, which I like very much. The low level employees, they have they have some information. They put forward suggestions for what the next project of the enterprise should be, but they don't have any power. They they can only make suggestions. And there's more than one of them. They're they're not one thing. There's all these different parts of the brain that are saying, hey, how about this? How about this? How about this? So what do you end up actually doing has to go through the gatekeeper. The gatekeeper, in your analogy, is in the corporation, is the, say, the chief financial officer or the CEO. And why don't you turn to this question of then how do they actually decide? In the case of a corporation, they have limited information. The CEO either says, that seems like a good idea, can't do all of them. Here's the one I think is the best, and we'll go forward. They might do that on profit maximization. They might do it because it's their friend who suggested it. The, the corporation has its own.
1: Peculiar imperfections as well, of course. But how does the brain do it? Exactly. And uh, I'm always assuming that the brain always has the best interest at heart. So in this case, the CFO is really want um, to maximi- maximize profit. And so he looks at only one metric, which is, for example, a return of in- on investment. And in our brain, the one metric is what I call expected emotional outcome. So, for each idea, our gatekeeper computes the expected emotional outcome and then selects the action that has the uh, highest expected emotional outcome, and that's the one action that would be sent to our muscle. Now, and this is the tricky part, expected emotional outcome is only computed considering our experiences. So this means that if uh, um, the employee in our brain was saying, we should run so that we lose weight, but before we've never run before and we don't have the experiential association that running makes us lose weight and that losing weight feels good. So if we never experienced before that running makes us feel good, then our gatekeeper will close the gate because he says the expected emotional outcome is negative. And there is no uh, consideration uh, such as thinking, such as imagining how we will feel. It's just remembering how Planning. we felt previously. Yeah. And, and that, um, that sounds pretty simplistic,
0: Luca. So um, if you had told that to me uh, in a casual conversation over coffee, I would say, that's silly. Come on, that's, that's ridiculous. Come on, look, look. when I want to lose weight, it's really easy. I know how to lose weight. I just have to eat less and exercise more. And we're going to put aside any other theories of weight loss. Let's just assume that's true. And I think it basically is. So I'm going to eat less and exercise more. Uh, so I just have to do that. And and I know what I want. I want to lose weight. I have a goal. And I'm going to, I'm going to achieve my goal using rational thought. What's the um, – why doesn't that work? And by the way, I think most of us listening know that it, often it doesn't work. Uh, you know, I have the extra cookie. I have the – extra two cookies oh i have the extra three cookies wait a minute i decided before i went to the party i was going to eat less we all agree i need to eat less and i'm at the party and there's the plate of cookies and i just have to not take one and something why is my arm going out toward the plate of cookies and eating it sometimes even without my conscious awareness worse Sometimes I'm watching my arm take the cookie going, you know, I think I decided beforehand I wasn't going to eat any of the cookies. And this is my third one. What's going on here? So I think your model captures this bizarre compulsiveness to our behavior at times that seems, quote,
1: irrational. Exactly. Uh, The very first page of the book says, we think we have a decision-making problem but we have an action taking problem and that's uh, uh that's the thing like usually we try we tend to solve like the problem from an analytical point of view we say like oh uh, i need i know that i need to lose weight i need to find the best uh, diet or i need to find the way in which i do it but usually the answers that we have on that side are already quite good enough the problem is that our brain somehow doesn't implement them and uh the reason why it doesn't implement them is if he believes that the expected emotional outcome of implementing them is negative. Uh, I make an example. Um, I usually tend to avoid uh, sweet food, but almost every morning I tend to eat a croissant. And that's a habit that it's extremely hard for me to get rid of. And the reason is because I believe that the expected emotional outcome of removing the morning croissant from my diet would be negative for a whole set of reasons. Because usually uh, I finish my my croissant, I drink my coffee, and then I start working like a machine. And I almost have the fear that if I remove the croissant, then my morning will be sloppy. Uh, Which, of course, it's a confabulation. The real reason is that I just feel good while eating a croissant, and that's the experience that I have, that's the experience that I expect, and I expect that if I remove it, Uh, I will feel bad. But that's the main obstacle. Usually our plans are good enough is that the emotional part of our brain, the one that only uses our experiences to think, thinks that implementing that plan will have a negative uh, expected emotional outcome.
0: Yeah. One of my, um, I've had different times in my life when I exercised a lot uh, or not at all. And, um, a beautiful example of what you're talking about is when I would convince myself that the reason I'm not exercising is I don't have the right shoes. So I'd go out, and I, it doesn't matter what the activity is. It could be playing squash. It could be uh, or some racket sport. It could be running. It could be walking. But I need, I tell myself that the reason I'm not doing it is I don't have the right, I don't have walking shoes, as if I couldn't do the, the walking with my regular shoes. Or I need special shoes for racquetball. Or, well, my running shoes, I have them, but they're a little old and uh, they don't have as much cushion as they used to have. So I, I better not run yet. I need to go out and get a new pair. And strangely enough,
1: after I bought the shoes, nothing changes. <laughs> exactly. This is the one test for discovering when something is a confabulation. If you have a reason not to do it, you solve the reason and then you still not do it, then you know 100% that it was a confabulation. So, for listeners
0: who are worried about this being true, and I think it is true, I think it, again, I'm not going to comment because I can't on whether the neuroscience supports it or not, but it it resonates deeply with my own personal shortcomings, so I find it very um, informative. But now I want to see if we can make it helpful, not just informative. Um, you know, because because if you're not careful, you'll think I just need to buy better shoes. I bought the cheap ones, so I better buy more expensive ones. So let's talk about some of the techniques that 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 you one might adopt to deal with this emotion. Expected, and by the way, you know I know it's very. Um, it's very disturbing to think that your behavior is driven by your uh, emotional experiences. That's, it's a very, um, I don't like the feeling of it, but it does ring true for some of these things at least. So what can you do about it if this is true?
1: Yes. So I've tried many things, and so I'm not going to tell you what is ideal, but I'm going to tell you what has the highest chance of working in the long term. And that is, it starts with acknowledging that it's not about the plan, but it's about whether we take action on the plan. And so the thing that 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 works the most for me is uh, I make a plan and then I check uh, with a deadline. For example, tomorrow morning, I will uh, not eat my croissant. And then the following day, I check whether I did it. And if I did it, then great problem solved. If I didn't do it, it means that I didn't have the expected emotional outcome to take that action. And the only solution is to devise uh, another action, which is smaller, uh, which is more inconsequential, which for which I do have the expected emotional outcome to take. And then if you iterate this, uh, usually on in the long term, you will, um, you will manage to. to to change the habit. Now there are two things though, that are that are problematic in this. The first one is is this idea of the long term. Like depending on the habit at hand, it might be something that you solve after two iterations, or it might be something that takes a lot of trials, a lot of uh, um, thinking about it, realizing, like thinking about the problems that the habit is bringing to your life. Uh, um, trying to, so that you can also like associate some negative emotional outcome to continuing the habit and so on. And then the second problem is that there are just some habits which have such a high uh, expected emotional outcome that our brain uh, will not, like we alone, our brain will just not get rid of it. And in that case, I think that we, we often need some, uh, uh, some external help, which could be, um, uh, asking a personal trainer or making a promise with our spouse or, or something similar. And often the problem is that sometimes we don't even have the emotion, the expected emotional outcome to do the promise, to call the personal trainer and. To be honest, that's not an easy problem to solve. It's just as it is. And I think that it's just this idea of looking for smaller or different actions that we can take. So, for example, if I cannot get myself to make the promise with my spouse, or oh, maybe I can make it with my best friend. Or anyway, this process of iteration.
0: So you need steps. But in the book, you give a lot of examples of how you can take small steps. And you talk about the importance of, of the immediacy of the, of the reward. So talk about uh, how that might work in practice.
1: Yes, uh, Rory Sutherland has a great example about this. He asks, why do most brands of toothpaste have mint flavor? And the reason is that mint flavor has nothing to do with keeping your mouth clean, but it has everything to do with getting the habit on. Because imagine that toothpaste doesn't have mint flavor. What happens is that you brush your teeth once, you you don't feel anything, and you think that you wasted your efforts, and then you stop uh, brushing teeth. Conversely, with the mint flavor, you brush your teeth once, and then you have the the feeling of a clean mouth. That makes you think that your efforts are bringing results, and you keep brushing your teeth. And then something else produces the desired effect of preventing uh, cavities. The same applies to our actions. We need to ask ourselves, is there the mint flavor? Is there the immediate result that is telling my brain that I didn't waste my effort? Is there the immediate result that is telling my brain this had a positive emotional expect, emotional outcome and so next time I expect another positive emotional outcome? And this applies both to our habits and so we should think about ways to make sure that we see the benefit immediately. And it also applies, uh, uh, I'm thinking a lot uh, about my work here in management consulting, with how uh, managers, when they communicate change uh, to a company, they expect their employees to do something different. And maybe on Monday morning, they communicate some change. And then on Monday afternoon, the employee is doing something different, but then nothing happens. And the employee thinks, oh, I just wasted my time. Oh they asked me to do the new procedure, but nothing changed, so maybe i'm just wasting my efforts, and then they get they just don't do it anymore, and they disengage and instead, we should always ask ourselves, am I giving people i'm asking things of the mint flavor am I giving them the early and immediate feedback that they're not wasting their efforts
0: so that's why you you mentioned that you know the praise or um uh, congratulations should be early and often, not just at the end of the process, not just at the annual review uh, i' probably told the story on here before about the teacher who um, has a new curriculum and uh, six, they have a big training session for the new curriculum and then six weeks later, the teacher goes in, the head of the department goes in to see how the new curriculum's working out, only to discover the teachers aren 't using it <laughs> at all, not like well not as well as they hope, but not at all. And when asked, they say, oh, it did, that doesn't work, that, that curriculum, I tried it, it doesn't work. And because there was not that immediate next day, oh, you tried it, good job, look at what happened. You can talk to the analytical brain too, of course, not just the emotional brain. You can tell the person that, oh, look how much better the student learned this, that, or the other. Uh, you can start to cr- – and, of course, the teacher cares about that. You can start to get those emotional rewards that will encourage compliance with the directive. And it's shocking, right? I think a lot of management failure occurs because the directive is made, the memo is printed, the email is sent, nothing happens. Well, what do you mean? But I told them and I'm the boss. No, that's not really enough.
1: (laughs) Exactly. It's crazy. Uh, Just bringing another example, Uh, I had uh, in my high school, I had a lot of brilliant uh, uh, classmates who were terrible at studying, like disengaged and so on. But then they were excellent at video games. And I'm not just talking about like playing video games or or finishing the game. I'm meaning like playing competitively, making elaborate strategies, practicing, trying new strategies, and so on. And I always ask myself, why is it that people engage so much with video games? And I think that the answer is that video games give you some empowerment and control, they give you immediate feedback and they give you prog- visible progression. And this is absent for most of uh, of our working life. An employee doesn't really have much control. When he does things right, he doesn't know it until uh, um, the end of the week or sometimes even until the annual review. If he progresses, he doesn't get the feeling of progression until he receives a raise uh, one year later. And therefore it's 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 normal it's rational to adapt by disengaging and i think that there are incredible margins of oppo- of opportunity into just giving faster feedback more immediate feedback
0: a lot of people ask me how to get smarter how to learn more what they should do with their lives you know i, I get emails from strangers expecting me to sometimes help them which is very flattering but Challenging. I don't know them very well. Uh, but one of the things I always tell people in this kind of situation, especially young people, is I, I say read. Reading is really important. Reading is undervalued in today's culture. We're screen-oriented. You can read on your screen. I read your entire book actually on my phone. But in general, what we consume on our screens is short-term candy and not so much long-term Medicine and reading is a phenomenal medicine. It 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 makes you smarter. It adds things for your brain to work on later when other books come in and other information. It's phenomenal, but we don't. A lot of people, I think, read less than they'd like. I once went to a a time management seminar, and uh, the teacher asked, "Why don't he he?" He asked, "How many people wish they read more?" Every hand the room went up. Every hand. He said, "Why don't you?" And his answer, which is not unrelated to yours, is. Books don't ring, meaning like your phone rings and saying, hey, I'm over here. They just sit there and you don't think about them. But the other part that you're emphasizing is that the returns from reading are abstract way in the future. Um, And so obviously techniques like registering at a site like Goodreads where you can rack up points for reading or sharing your reading achievements on Twitter, these are ways that you can – habituate yourself to what you know is a good behavior in the analytical part of your brain, but not so much in the emotional part. And I think those kind of, really what you're saying is that long-run habits are very difficult to establish, step, excuse me, not long-run habits, habits that have a long-term payoff, but not so much of a short-term payoff, are very difficult to to implement.
1: Exactly. Uh, related on this, related on like practicing, practicing a habit, I have this concept of meta-practice. So the idea is that when we are learning a new skill, we usually practice the skill. For example, I want to learn to shoot better basketball. I practice shooting the basketball. But often we do not practice the practice. So the idea is that maybe I can spend two hours shooting a basketball in the basket and maybe I'm not learning anything out of it because I'm not getting the feedback. And I'm talking both about feedback of like understanding whether the movement is producing the right result and both the emotional feedback of practicing today makes me more likely to want to practice tomorrow. And so I always advise people when you practice, don't only practice your skill, but also practice your practice. Ask yourself, have I learned enough? How can I learn more? How can I change my practice so that I learn more tomorrow? And have I enjoy the practice enough so that I, will, so that I want to uh, practice again tomorrow? And if not, how can I change the practice so that I will be more likely to want to practice the next time? So this is my idea of meta-practice. Practice your practice.
0: It's a great idea. And, you know, you talk in your book about uh, learning a language and listeners know I'm recently moved to Israel and my Hebrew is not good enough and I'm trying to make it better. And I do want to make it better. The analytical side of my brain says I will be happier in the long run, and I'll be a more effective uh, president of Shalem College. Many of my colleagues speak English, but not all, and not all my students speak it well. So I I need Hebrew, and I need Hebrew for day-to-day life. There's a lot of reasons. It'd be good to learn Hebrew. But how much time do I spend every day learning Hebrew, and what are the techniques that I use? So one idea is… I'm about to start this is to have a quote personal trainer. who's going to show up and force me to learn. But my wife and I have lots of. My wife is in the same situation. She wants to learn more, and we we have all kinds of ideas. Oh, let's listen to this podcast together. Let's watch this show in Hebrew, uh, and and get better on 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 our computer. And yet we do very little of it. She actually does a lot because she's in formal training. Called an opon, and she's getting better, and she sees the progress my progress i'm getting better there's no doubt about it, but I'm not practicing well, and I need some I need some tricks to get better day to work at it day to day It's just sort of happening, which is not bad it's pretty good I'm busy I have a lot to do,
1: but there are probably some things I could do better so what are your what's your advice uh Usually on these kind of things I don't really have like very specific advice. I just have the advice of try a lot of things and see what works. See what sticks. And at the beginning don't necessarily look for for effectiveness. Look for what sticks, what you keep doing. And then uh only in a second step you can look for effectiveness. One common mistake in the startup world is uh, to optimize before having found a product market fit, a a product that the market really wants that they start pulling. And only then you can think how to advertise it better, how to make it cheaper, and so on. But if you try to optimize too early, there is just too much friction because you don't have a good product enough, you don't have a product that the market wants, and you push it, but the market doesn't get it. And the same applies in some way to our habits uh, if you try to look only for the habit, which is the most effective, but it's not a habit that, that your brain is like receptive to, then you might waste a lot of effort. And unless there is a very, very specific habit that you need to have that version, I think that it's best first to try many types of habit. Like maybe you try learning with an app, then next week you try joining a group or whatnot. And then you, you kind of see what sticks. And uh, only then you can think, like, how can I get the most out of it?
0: But, but you're suggesting that what is likely to stick are things that give me an immediate return. And your analysis of why I'm, I have failed to implement many different strategies I could have is because I get so little emotional return from any one of them in the short run. In the long run, I might become a fluent Hebrew speaker, but in the short run, it just – I took 15 minutes out of my day, and it was – and it hurts your brain, by the way. Um, one, of my, uh, one of my listeners said uh, you should read to the wall, meaning pick up a book. One of the problems with conversational language is that you don't – you need people to talk to, and they're not always – their schedule doesn't always work with yours. So pick up the book, read it to – pick up a book, actually ideally a book with some dialogue, and read it out loud. And get your brain in the habit of following um, the patterns of conversation and, and syntax. It's a great idea. It's no fun. <laughs> it's less than fun. And he points out, oh, it's great because after ten minutes your brain will hurt. It won't in English, but in, in Hebrew your brain will start to hurt. That means you're, you're you're learning. And I'm thinking, yeah. And I don't like it. Uh, I don't. Now that I've read your book, that's my thought. Um, that's a tough one, right? I mean, I, language acquisition. You, what you really need to do is video game it, I guess, and have some kind of uh, points or other kinds of uh, dopamine rush that, that would help you um, make progress and practice better.
1: Yes, I think so. Uh, generally, just because we use this word gamification, generally I'm like against like real gamification because I think that then it might bring on the wrong road, introduce perverse incentives and all these kind of things. I think that it's mostly about Trying different approaches and see the one uh, that that is closer to a game, so gives you a bit of control, gives you immediate feedback, and then uh, and then try to leverage it yeah
0: I will say that this podcast I was listening to gave me an idiomatic expression, and I was able to use it the next day, and it was thrilling. It was so exciting. I tossed it into a conversation in Hebrew. Uh, it was actually an English conversation with some Israelis, and I threw in the Hebrew idiom, and I felt, um, "Boy, this is fun!" And that you know, I need to find a few more of those and start, you know, speaking in this weird sort of conversational style, full of idioms, using <laughs> all these words I've just learned. Uh, let's talk about procrastination generally. We've, we've touched on it. Uh, I think most people think procrastination is a Character flaw. Oh, he's a procrastinator. You know, I just procrastinate too much. But you see it a little
1: bit differently. Explain how you look at procrastination. Yes, I really don't think that procrastination is a character flaw because one of the ways that I explain it in the book is almost like uh, the concept of passive sabotage. So the idea that if you have an action, if you are requested by someone to take an action and you don't think the action is good for you, you will either not do it or in the case you are coerced to do it, you will do it badly. You will try to do it for as short as possible and and so on. And I think that that's exactly what happens in our brain for a lot of things. The analytical part of our brain coerces almost the emotional part of our brain into taking an action or makes a, a contact uh, with with someone else or, with its, or yourself a promise. But then the emotional part of our brain is like, I don't want to do it. <laughs> and not because uh, I'm lazy but because I think that the outcome will be bad for me. And so, of course, I try not to do it. And if I had to do it, I could do it as little, as fast, as uh, poor quality, and whatnot as possible. There is uh, something that I've seen a few times, is that there is an employee who is asked to make a presentation. And then he, the emotional part of our brain doesn't like making presentations. Maybe because he has bad um, uh, experiences with talking in public and so on. And so sometimes the emotional part of our brain thinks, if I ace this presentation, my boss will ask me to do more presentations. And I will feel worse in the future. Therefore, the best thing I can do is not doing the presentation. But if I don't do the presentation, I get fired. So I will just do a bad presentation.
0: It's fascinating. Um, It's an interesting phenomenon. I I have no no trouble making public presentations. I look forward to them. They're fun for me. In fact, I probably say yes to too many public presentations because I, for the reasons we're talking about. But there are there is a situation where I don't like talking in public, and that's or where I get uneasy, and that's the uh, going around. You know, it's a group of people sitting at a table or in a circle, and oh, yeah. and someone says, "Well, we're going to go around and everybody tell why you're here, what you're, whatever it is, identify yourself, and then say there's usually a set of things you're supposed to fill in the blank." And um, I find myself getting a little bit nervous, and I think a lot of people do in that in that situation. You're suggesting that's because it didn't go well in the past. Is that what you're thinking? This is causing me to be so anxious about
1: it? I think it's one possibility. So I'm, I'm, I'm almost sure that the reason is because you have negative emotional, expected emotional outcome associated to detection. Then, of course, there might be different reasons for that. So one reason could be that you had bad experiences in the past. One other reason is that uh, that your brain is thinking about some possible outcome and feels really bad about it. One possibility could be that you had positive emotional associations with the action in general, but there is one aspect uh, that you have negative emotional associations with. There could be a lot of explanation. But I think that the real explanation somehow is something that causes the emotional part of our brain to have a negative outcome, a outcome.
0: Now, you started off this whole conversation saying your brain generally looks out for you and tries to do what's best for you and acts in your interests and so on. And yet what we're talking about now is is the uh, this paradox, this tension between what you want and what you really want or what you want, what you want to want this is, this is the way I sometimes think about it. You know, I say, uh, drawing on um, uh, Harry Frankfurt's work – you know, we have we have desires, but we also have desires about our desires. So I like ice cream, and and I really enjoy eating it every time, but I don't want to like it so much, and I have trouble implementing that desire. The desire to eat ice cream, I'm really good at implementing. Desire to not like it as much, not so good. And you you know you're suggesting that that's because in the past when I ate ice cream, I was happy, and I think you're right. I like that's a great simple point. But the question is, you know, how do you reconcile this this tension? between the brain, different parts of the brain, and this view you have that this is really basically a good system, right? In a way, it looks like it's not a very good system. It looks like it leads to conflict and stress. So how do you think about these different parts of our brain being, quote, good for us?
1: Yeah, so I need to clarify who I mean are good for us. So it's good for our ancestors. Because that's, what, uh, uh, that's the criteria on which we evolved if something was good for the survival of our ancestors, uh, the ancestors that were doing it survived more, and therefore that's our, the genes that we have, and that's the processes that uh, are wired in our brain. So usually you say, uh, you know, probably that in a lot of behavioral economics, uh, there is the idea that we do what makes us survive. And uh, in the book, I make the argument that it's wrong, and we do what feels like survival, and the reason is because what we do in our brain is mediated by our emotional brain, the gatekeeper. So the gatekeeper doesn't know all the analytical thinking. Our it cannot do what he thinks that make us survive. He does what he feels that will make us survival. So there is this this. Um, these insertions of feeling, which is extremely important. And then the second component is that we do not do what feels good to our survival to us, but we do what feels like survival to our ancestors. Because we have our ancestors' genes. Uh, I make the example of uh, the human civilization going to Mars. If we go to Mars and then uh, um, in a couple of generations there would be the first which is born on Mars, his genes will still be not the genes which are adapted to live on Mars, but the genes which are adapted to live on Earth. And the same applies to our brain. Our brain is not the best brain to survive in the modern world. It's the best brain to survive in the ancient world, let's say. And, that's, and for example, why do we like ice cream so much, even if eating too much is bad for us? Because, in the past, sugar was constrained, and eating more sugar was almost always a winning strategy and in the modern world, it's not true anymore, but it doesn't matter because our brain is all
0: yeah and and that's you know that's why supposedly again, I don't know if this is really true, but it's an interesting argument that that's why we like ripe fruit, right ripe fruits got more nutrients than than unripe fruit so having a taste for sugar would be good for your um evolutionary strategy and therefore we're stuck with that sugar loving uh strategy that was great in primitive times not so great in modern times not not as still great sugar sweets you know nutrients are good (laughs) but you get all this other stuff that goes with it that's not so good um let's talk about addictions so um In particular, you argue that addictions produce stress, which I think is true. Uh, But talk about why that's true and uh, what we can learn
1: from it. Yeah, so one thing uh, I've noticed uh, is that with smokers, it's true that smoking a cigarette reduces their stress level in that moment. But it's true that Smokers that do not, uh, that didn't uh, smoke recently, they start to feel feeling stressed um, soon. I mean, of course, like if they are if they are frequent smokers. I think that um, that kind of applies to all uh, addictions because addictions are usually the response of doing something that feels good. So you have this double-sided medal. On one side, you do something that feels good. So in that moment. You do, you feel like you did something good that, that feels like it increased your survival. You do, you, you feel good and so on. The flip side of that medal is that you created an association in our brain that uh, smoking cigarettes feels like surviving. And the implication is that if smoking cigarettes feels like surviving, then not smoking cigarettes feels like the opposite of survival. And therefore, automatically, if you're not smoking it, you feel like you're putting yourself in danger. Of course, this is not an analytical uh, thought. So you're not really thinking that. It's just uh, the result of some wiring that you're putting in our brain. You're putting some wire in your brain that when electricity passes through it, you're feeling like you're increasing your survival. And if no electricity passes through it for too long, it's almost a sign that you're not doing what's good for you. And therefore, you almost feel the need to do it. And because you feel the need to do it, if you cannot do it, then you feel stressed. And that's what I meant, saying that uh, addictions increase stress.
0: So the the um, the addict also has this um, strange mix of autonomy and a lack of autonomy, right? So when you're relieving the stress, when you're smoking the cigarette, taking the drink, taking the drug, you're feeling great because you've you've you're in control. But then when you don't have it, you're not in control, and then your analytical brain is also saying, "This is not good for you. Why are you doing it?" How how do we
1: fool ourselves in those situations? What's going on there? Well, we fool ourselves because, like often, we talk, we think uh, with the analytical brain but that just doesn't matter. It's a bit like you have two people, you have the analytical person and the emotional person, and the analytical person is thinking like, oh, we're fooling ourselves because we keep driving in the wrong direction. But the emotional person is the one which, uh, which is actually at the steering wheel, and for, the, for her, she's going in the right direction. And she will keep going in that direction until she feels that it's the, the wrong direction. And the key word is feel, uh, I usually say that um, everyone wants to lose weight and everyone's bad if they're not losing weight, but the people who lose weight are the ones who feel good while they go to the gym. And that's kind of like, of like what happens with a, lot of, uh, with a lot of addictions. Like I feel, I think that it's bad for me to eat a croissant every morning, but I will stop the moment that I feel bad while I'm eating the croissant. Not afterwards, while I'm eating the question.
0: So the people who who manage to change their habits, we the people who lose weight or the people who who are not addicted to, say, drugs, they're the people who it's a it's a it's a selection problem, right? We tend to go to those people and say, so what was the trick? And the trick was there wasn't a trick. It was a different kind of they're either a different kind of person or they have a different set of emotional um, benefits and costs that, that drove them that way. But we tend to look at, at correlations in that situation and, and I think probably draw the wrong conclusions.
1: Correct. Then I don't want to oversimplify everything to a single factor. If your diet is wrong so that even if you exercise, uh, you don't see results or if you're exercising in such a bad way that while you do the exercise, you feel some pain, then these are all problems that uh, that at the end prevent you from feeling good while doing it. So there are a lot of factors, but all those factors, they they kind of have the confluence in, uh, in uh, what's the emotional outcome while I'm doing it, and therefore what's the expected outcome that I expect out of it the next time.
0: So as a... Economist who was trained otherwise, you know, this is deeply disturbing to me. I'm I'm telling you through most of this conversation how much I like it and how interesting it is. But this idea that people are irrational is what it sounds like. It sounds like you're saying, you know, people are rational. They react to their feelings. They don't react thoughtfully. They don't react rationally. And they make a whole bunch of decisions that are based on just this feel good, short term stuff. And economists like to believe that, no, 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 no. That's not what happens. We, we, we have these plans and we have expectations. We have imperfection, of course, in how we look at the world, but, but we're, we're rational. So how, how do you answer the question, is your view of human behavior
1: rational? It sounds irrational. I think, it's very, I think it's very rational. The question is rational for whom and over which time frames. So I think that it's very rational, for example, for, but more rational for our ancestors than for us. I think that it's rational, but more rational for a population than necessarily for the for the individual. Uh, I make I make the example of anti-vaxxers. I think that uh, right now, for most people bearing some some very specific conditions, and bearing people that live in a very covid-free zone, I think that it's rational to vaccine for the individual. But it's also true that for the population, is rational to have a few people who always think differently so that the population never goes all in on a wrong choice. And at a population level, the optimal choice is a multitude of choice. And that creates a built-in variance into us, which means that for the population to be rational, it's impossible that every single individual is completely rational. And so that's part That's part of the thing. Another thing is the time frame. Because what's rational for me to optimize today is different to what's rational for me to optimize uh, in one year. It's different to what's rational for me to optimize over my lifetime. And then we can go talking about, like there is the whole field of ergodicity, which is is about answering uh, these questions. But the idea is that if different time frames require different rationalities, then necessarily there cannot be optimal uh, rationality for everyone for all time frames, and so that's 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 another consideration. So just to sum up your question, it's impossible. Like rationality scales, optimality is different at different scales, and uh, there will necessarily be something which is uh, uh, under optimized at at a given scale.
0: And of course, it's also true that you know what information is available to the outside observer, maybe by now maybe is incomplete and uh, makes it harder for the uh, outside observer to conclude thoughtfully about what is actually rational or irrational. But to, to hone in a little bit more on the economics idea, you know, as economists, we're we're big believers in incentives, right? We look at costs and benefits, and we say when we raise a price. People do less of something. Uh, When we lower the price, people do more of something. Uh, A thoughtful economist knows that isn't just about money. It's about emotional outcomes or pride or reward, not just, again, monetary reward. Uh, What you're suggesting is that certainly in the business context, certainly in the management context, that it's important to provide those incentives early. They should be emotional the emotional ones can be monetary of course getting money is fun <laughs> uh but you're, that those are the implications you you're not arguing that that you know that people just do what feels good or uh just you know you can't predict what they're gonna do so try to fit how you see the world in that in that narrower economist framework where does it fit and where does it not fit
1: yeah i make uh I make an example there is a new boss that comes at work. And he says uh, uh, to everyone uh, who reaches their sales target, I will give them a, monetar- a financial incentive. I will give you $5,000, for example. Whether people accept that incentive and that incentive changes the behavior depends also on whether they expect that the incentive is true, for example. Like if the previous boss promised money but then never give money, then they will not do it. If they think that the extra, the sales target is so high that the extra work is not guaranteed or it's not worth the $5,000, then they will not do it, and so on. So it's always the question of how does the analytical incentive um, translate into the emotional? The idea is when the boss says, I will give you $5,000 if you reach your target, the analytical brain gets it. The question is, does it produce like this tickling in the emotional brain, and that 's what will will determine uh, uh, whether the incentive is effective and whether the incentive produces the tickling usually depends on uh, past experiences, past emotional associations, and a few other things
0: and, and how it's implemented so you 're not saying that that it wouldn 't work you 're saying to make it work effectively requires a certain set of of things around it that that um get the attention and and promise reward to the expected reward to the participants uh, at one point you wrote you write in your book a sane mind is designed to hold beliefs that are inconsistent with each other explain
1: yes so back to the uh, back to the metaphor of the brain as a company you have different employees and it's possible that the different employees hold different beliefs incompatible even but for each employee, they have extremely good reasons and they can justify that very well and usually also objective. It's completely possible, for example, that for the um, uh, for the visual part of, of my brain, it says, oh, this, uh, this cheese looks really good and I should eat it. And it's possible that for the olfactory part of my brain, it says, oh, the cheese smells awful and I should not eat it. And they are incompatible very, very well justified. And the reason why they live together is because no part of our brain has access to all the information. If they had the same information, they couldn't have incompatible beliefs. But because they have access to different information, it's rational for them to have incompatible beliefs, and it's also optimal. Uh, We see in a lot of species, uh, I'm thinking, for example, in bees, that the optimal strategy for the bee, for the bee, for the hive to choose the the best new hive location, is for bees to hold incompatible beliefs. So the way it works is that each bee goes exploring um, random location around the nest, and then comes back and then makes a dance. Uh, dances say which expresses like, "Oh, I went to this place, and I think we should build the nest here," or "I think we should not build the nest here," and then do the dance, they look at the other bees' dance, if the other bees dance uh, better, like more vigorously, which means they have a stronger belief, they start accepting the belief of the other bees, or they start visiting the suggestion and then come back with their own opinion and on. and then eventually we con- the, bee, the hive converges on a single opinion and moves there. And that's the optimal strategy for bees, which has been proven by millions of years of evolution. And the same applies for a population. I strongly think that for a population the optimal strategy is to have different people with different opinions and then have some system to converge over a single course of action. And the same applies to our brain. For our brain, the best course of action is to have different regions with different opinions and then have something that produces a single course of action, and in that case is the gatekeeper. Now, the, last, the tricky point is that because our brain produces one single course of action, we usually think that our brain thinks as one, but that is wrong. Just like uh, elections in a the country, they produce one action. For example, that the president uh, they chose this president. It doesn't mean that everyone thought the same, and the same applies to our brain. It's not because I decide to eat the croissant that all part of the brain um, agreed that eating the croissant was a good was the good choice.
0: So that's a very deep idea. Uh, comes up a lot on this program. That I like to point out that political outcomes are not the will of the people. They're the will. They're not anybody's will. Certainly, there's no such thing as the people. It's a particular political system. It's a particular way to aggregate the diversity of views and um, in in many areas of life, finance, um, career choice. Um, Romantic associations variance is really good, as long as you have optionality. As long as you can choose to reject certain options, so going out dating a lot of people is a really good idea. As long as you're not required to marry the first twelve, in which case you have to think carefully about what your process is and who you choose to interview. But if you're if you can date inex- inexpensively, it's good to date a lot of people. And of course, your culture determines what's an expensive date and so on. And your point about um, diversity of opinion is really profound, right? We want people who are contrarians um, in general because it could be that the group's mainstream ideas are wrong, and we know this from history. Often, the group's mainstream ideas are wrong, and the the, the minority of contrarian opinions crucial. And the scientific method—we have all kinds of ways to 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 throw out what we think are as uh, as bad options. But I think what's happening partly in the world right now is that um, people have lost the um, romance that they have about diversity of opinion. Instead of seeing diversity of opinion as a fabulous survival strategy because you have a mechanism for rejecting bad opinions and accepting good ones, all of a sudden we've come to a point where we don't like bad opinions. We, We don't like, excuse me, minority opinions or contrarians, and they get canceled, judged, and so on. And uh, that doesn't seem to bode well for the future survival of many of the societies that are that are doing this
1: yes uh, I totally agree. I think that for survival is necessary like to have these different opinions and somehow to 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 enable people like like to prevent society from going all in on uh, on a single mono decision I think it's extremely important and uh, if I can make the example of uh, heuristics, why we have heuristics. And, uh, uh Gerd is, 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 wrote a few books about heuristic and he makes uh, the example of the ball, of the baseball, um, heuristic in which baseball catchers, the way that they find out where the ball will land is that they keep running towards the ball, keeping the angle, uh, at which they're looking at it constant. Now, The thing that I would add on this is not only that this heuristic works wonderfully, but it's also the best heuristic to manage unexpected events. So imagine that you're the baseball catcher and then suddenly you're doing the heuristic and then suddenly there is a gush of wind and the ball accelerates in a a random direction. If you were using that, that heuristic, you are optimally placed to change your direction and get there still very much on time. Whereas if you try to make some computation and maybe you decided that you need to go at a constant speed, uh, uh, it would be optimal if there is no change. But as soon as there is a change, it's not optimal anymore. The same applies to variance in opinions of people. Not only produces good outcome given what we know now, but it also makes sure that if there is some change in what we know, we are optimally prepared for the change. And that's one reason why heuristics is important, and that's one reason why accepting uh, diversity of opinion is important.
0: It's an extremely uh, profound point. Uh, Gerd Gigerenzer was a, a guest on the program, as was Rory Sutherland, by the way. I don't remember if we talked about mint toothpaste, but we probably did. Um, and you 're talking you call them baseball catchers, but usually it 's a the technical term is an outfielder the the, the catcher is is that literally is not just the person who catches a ball but the person who catches the ball thrown by the pitcher oh, yes. so outfielders are the ones who have to run down uh, balls in the air and the, the 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 counterpoint to this heuristic of keeping the angle constant is. They make a prediction as to where the ball will land based on the, the the angle that it leaves the bat, and they try to race to the place where the ball is going to be. And your point, which is really extremely important – sounds like it's silly because it's just baseball, but it's not – is that if the wind or other things change – another example would be the terrain you're running across <laughs> changes. You might need to adjust in mid mid midstream, and you don't want to be stuck with a plan that is – fit for one problem that is not the problem anymore so i think the the extraordinary productivity and value that comes from differing viewpoints clashing with one another and producing understanding or yet a third option uh, when we're trying to solve problems is the essence of the last 350 years or so of human progress and not just mechanical progress. I think that, you know, we're not just talking here about standard living, but, you know, also our ability to understand one another and to interact with one another. And we seem to be losing that latter skill, the ability to interact with one another. That's going to start to affect our ability to make progress in the more mechanical material world. Um, I don't know how important that is if we're all killing each other. So that, you know, it's really important not to kill each other. That that would be, to me, a priority. Um, And then worry about getting up to a higher standard of living. So um, it, it, it's a fascinating time that we have lost our belief in the value of diversity of opinion, especially at the universities where of course that's the essential place where this process in, in theory, you know, works out uh, The people have different viewpoints about what, what is true and what is not true. And, Research and other techniques, workshops, seminars, coffee arguments, arguments over coffee, that's how we move forward. And if we lose that, we're going to learn less and we'll be less prepared for for other things. I guess the question then would be why, why has that happened? And one answer would be that universities have lost their interest in truth. It's no longer their purpose. I think that's the main reason. There's something else there. I don't want to go into what they are, but um, I think that's the major problem in America right now, at
1: least. Yes, I I totally agree on that. And I would think that one more thing is the disinterest in the concrete. Because when we're talking about something concrete, then it almost becomes obvious, like, what's truth? And you cannot really hold a concrete belief which is false for um, for too long, especially if you if then somehow you have to to practice it, but the more we're talking about abstract things, the the more we can uh, we can hold false beliefs and even dangerous beliefs, and um, and I mean abstract, not just uh, abstract as in um, in the usual term of abstract, but also abstract such as distant for me. For example, an academic who never worked uh, in manufacturing that has some opinions on manufacturing. Even if it's a concrete opinion, for example, on how something should be produced, it's abstract, meaning that he doesn't have the feedback from reality. That's what I mean from abstract. And I want to make another point on this, uh, which is imitation. Like Usually we tend to say that imitation without understanding, it's stupid. But actually, imitation without understanding is an excellent strategy. Imagine that you get teleported back in time into prehistoric era. And you need to forage your food. And you have no idea about which food is safe to eat. Your best strategy is to look at what other people are doing and do it. Why does it work? Because those people have skin in the game, and if they did something which is unsafe, they would have died. Which means that the only people that are left to imitate are the people who are doing it right. So imitation is rational in the presence of skin in the game. It's not just about the skin in the game. It's not just about incentive, but it's about risk putting one's survival on the line. And so the same applies to, uh, applies unfortunately to abstract concepts. If you have an abstract concept and you are not practicing it, you are not putting your, your reputation on the line, your survival on the line, and so on, it's very possible that you keep repeating a belief which is wrong. And then people imitate you, and then it's very bad for society. And that's one reason why skin in the game is so important, not only because it causes offenders to, uh, to be removed from the, people, from the pool of people that can make danger, but also because it, re- which is, was the point of Taleb skin in the game but also because it removes them from the pool of people which can be imitated. It's a a fantastic point. The problem is is that
0: most of the things we argue about are not empirical. They're almost by definition opaque, by definition distant from us, by definition not subject to um, learning or not learning. If I have a a particular viewpoint uh, about some social force, whether it's how the economy works or religion or um, educational theory, and I never see it put into practice. I never get any feedback. I never have skin in the game. It's hard to know how we're going to make progress in those areas, and yet those have become the areas that we argue about um, rather than saying, well, you know, easy come, easy go. Different people could feel different things about these things. I have no way of knowing if I'm right. And yet uh, we get to the situation of uh, the second coming of Yates's poem where the worst are full of passionate intensity, right? The people who have the least reason to know with any certainty whether they're right or not are the ones who feel the most strongly about it. It seems like a bad recipe.
1: Yes, I agree. And of course, like there are some fields in which this problem is very hard to solve. But I think that there are also fields in which it's much easier to solve It's much acc- and and uh, there should be more done in that direction. I make a very simple example, which is my field, which is management consulting. I think that so many problems in management consulting could be solved if the time that one company hires a management consultant, the first thing that they do is that they put him in front of uh, some of their line workers and they ask him to talk to them and to explain his, uh, his ideas. And, and you would immediately realize whether he's talking nonsense or not. And for example, myself, like w- whenever I'm doing some engagement with some company, one of the first things that I do is that I go talk to the line to the workers because, of course, I have some hypotheses which are made on, on what I know from previous companies, what's my guesses, but I always try to verify them with people who have direct contact on the field because maybe it's not like the idea is completely nonsense, but maybe it's nonsense in this in this very application. And that's just an example of how like there are some fields in which feedback with the reality is definitely possible, it's definitely accessible, it's just that we're not doing it right now.
0: So I want to say something speculative here. Um, I, I think, you know, based on... Recent episode hasn't aired yet, but with Moshe Koppel, uh talking about tradition, and tradition is something I think modern people are very uncomfortable with. Uh, I'm writing a book on decision making uh, in life. Uh, it's called "Wild Problems," and my argument is is that most of the big decisions we make in life, whether to marry, whether to have a child, what career to pursue, whether to be religious or leave a religion, and so on, these are problems that generally uh, don't have empirical aspects to them, they're very hard to get evidence for, it's hard to make an analytical uh, decision, it's hard to use algorithms, Uh, we only get one draw from the urn, and so uh, we're very uncomfortable with these decisions because, unlike other areas of our life where we have lots of uh, technological ways to make us more at ease with the likely outcome, in these situations we're really uh, at sea. We we have a lot of trouble making these decisions in what we we call rationally. Now, this is a new phenomenon for most of these areas, right? Most of the time in, in historic past, you married who your parents told you. You had children because it wasn't even an option. I mean, even think about it. You didn't have ways to control it very well. But more than that, you just it was just what everybody did. Um, you went to the career that your parents were already in if you're lucky or didn't have a job. But usually you're stuck because of guilds or constraints uh, to do what your parents did. It wasn't something you went off to school and explored 40 different things you just do what your parents did and so we're in this new world as human beings and um the idea of using tradition to solve these problems is very unappealing to most people but i think i'm not sure i want to say this in my book because i'm not sure it's true but i think it's underrated um of course some traditions are not just not good they're evil uh they're wicked but many traditions are there because they have stood the test of time for people who had skin in the game. And, and um, maybe the right way to think about it is it's not a bad default. It's not a bad place to start. Maybe it, you shouldn't listen to it the way people did for the last 500 or 2,000, 3,000 years. But maybe you ought to at least give it the benefit of the doubt. What are your thoughts on that?
1: I think so. I think that there are some traditions in which harm is evident. And uh, I'm thinking about some forms of, uh, of abuse, uh, some forms of labor. And these ones, because the harm is evident, I think they can be trashed uh, very easily, in a way. Uh, objective harm, long-term harm, I mean. There uh, are other traditions instead in which things are much like less evident. And I think that those ones should be treated a bit like you know, like Chesterton fences. Like, if they are there, they are there to solve a problem, which doesn't mean that we cannot be the better fans, but it means that we need to understand what the problem was. And, uh, we need to come out with some options and we need to try them in the reality for some time. And, um, yeah, and that's basically the process. And then, of course, for yourself, like, it's very hard to do that because this is something that we can, do a society, but yourself a lot of things in life you have only one shot and 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 I don't even know if there is if there is a if there is a right option rather than trying to understand and then take your own decision but make trying trying to make sure that you take a decision which is not ma- that is made on as complete information as you can so it means so that, talk, so that, Yeah. yeah oh, go ahead no I just mean it's usually. It can be uh, summarized as talk to the elders and ask them why they're doing them, and then you can agree or disagree. My guest today has been Luca
0: Delana. His book is The Control Heuristic. Luca, thanks for being part of
1: EconTalk. Thank you, so much for having invited me. It's been wonderful.
0: This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty.